Well, good morning. It's so good seeing all of you guys. Welcome to Forest Park. Uh, before we get into the word, before we pray, um, I completely forgot to send you guys an email um, letting you know about the outcome. Um, all three elder nominees um, have been confirmed in by the church, and so we are be excited about that. Um, all John, Matt, and um, in June. Man, you know it's going to be a long morning if I can't remember people's name, have been confirmed in. And so um, during member gathering um, in December, we're going to pray over them um, as we start the work that the Lord has for us. But let's get in the Word. Um, let me pray for us and let's get into to the Word. Oh, Honey, Father, I thank you for the incredible work that you have initiated through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, that as we read the call to worship, that who can ascend the hill of the Lord, who can enter into his presence, and the reality of it is the answer is no one, because we are all unclean, unfit, unworthy. And yet, because of the work that your son has done for us on our behalf, took all of our sins upon himself and exchanged our unrighteousness for his righteousness, we may enter your presence. And it's not because of anything that we have done. It's what your son has done on our behalf. And Lord, may we never take for granted the fact that we are allowed in your presence, that we can hear from you, all because of what your Son has done on our behalf. And so, Lord, I do pray that you would open up our ears, our hearts, and our minds. Can you speak to us? Can you help us to understand truth? Can you help us to embrace this truth by faith? And may this faith follow with a commitment as we walk in joyful obedience to you. Lord, may we walk out of here in awe of you. And Lord, I do pray for those who might not know you, who've not surrendered their life to you, have not embraced the truth of who you are and what you've done. Can you open up their eyes? Can you convict them? Can you help them to recognize their need for a Savior so that they will confess you as Lord and Savior? May lives be transformed, Lord Jesus. And for those who are believing, may we continue to believe as we hold fast to the glorious truths of the gospel. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. If you have your Bibles, let's turn to John. We're in John chapter 20, uh, verse 19, as we're almost done uh, with the series as we've walked through the gospel of John. Now, where we find ourselves after Jesus' death and his burial, it seems like hope must have been totally lost. Jesus was buried in a cold tomb, And the disciples now somehow needed to learn to pick up the broken pieces. These men and women have followed Jesus. They've dedicated their entire lives to Jesus. And now they must have felt crushed and confused by Jesus' death. And so Mary comes to the tomb and she finds the tomb to be empty. 
And she's really worried that somebody must have taken Jesus' body. The tomb has been robbed. But in reality, what actually happened, it was not the tomb that was, it was not Jesus' body that had been robbed, but rather it was death that had been robbed that morning by the power of the resurrection. And what we find ourselves in our text today, on that very evening of Resurrection Sunday, Jesus appears to his disciples just as he appeared to Mary. And really what we're going to see happen is we're going to see the disciples move from a grief-stricken cowering in fear to now fixing their gaze on the resurrected Savior. We're going to see how they move from unbelief to belief as they're filled with peace and joy because the resurrection changes everything. So let's look at our text and let's see what happens. John 20, verse 19, it says this. When it was evening of that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, Peace be with you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side, so the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And after saying this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So let's stop here and just unpack a little bit and see what's going on. So the first thing that we observe is that the disciples are gathering behind locked doors. And John tells us the reason why they're gathering behind locked doors is because they are in fear of the Jewish authorities. If the Jewish authorities made sure that their master was executed, it wouldn't take much for them to go after the followers of Jesus and to order their execution. And in addition, they just received the news that Jesus' body was missing. The authorities could come and interrogate them and worse, blame them for the stealing of Jesus' body and the consequences could be severe. And so we find them in fear, hiding. And even though that might be true, one of the things that I think that John is trying to tell us is that the reason that the doors are locked, and we find out that in verse 19 and 26, was not to necessarily show us that the disciples were afraid, even though they were afraid, but rather what he's trying to do is he's trying to emphasize the nature, the miraculous nature of Jesus' appearance among his disciples. He just appeared. Just as the resurrected body passed through the grave clothes, so it passed through locked doors and somehow appeared and materialized. But it wasn't some spirit, it wasn't some ghost that went through the walls and just hovered around them, but rather it was a physical body where he showed them his hands and his sides. In other words, what John is telling us is that this Jesus was real, physical, scars to prove it, and yet this body was strange where locked doors could not contain it, and even the grave clothes could not contain it. And one of the things that's interesting is that Jesus, when he appears to his disciples, the very the first thing he said to them is, peace be with you. Now, now, when we look at that phrase, on the surface, we might be thinking, you know what, that's just a standard greeting, shalom, peace be with you. Hey, everyone, I hope you're doing well. 
But the reality of it is what, what we've noticed in Scripture after studying Scripture, when, when something is repeated more than once, what the author is trying to do is he's trying to draw our attention to something because something greater is happening. And what we're going to see in our entire text, this greeting of peace be with you, is repeated in verse 19, 21, and 26, which now, if this phrase is repeated, now we have to ask ourselves this question. Okay, it's repeated more than once, twice, three times. What's the significance of this? So a good question for us to ask as we look at this text is, why does Jesus repeat this greeting? And I think the reason why is because the very first thing that Jesus is doing is he is reminding them of the promise that he made. We find in John 14, verse 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled or fearful. So what's happening? Jesus sees his disciples. Is their heart troubled? Are they fearful? Yes, and so what is Jesus doing? Jesus reminds them of the promise he made. Peace I give you. My peace I give you. I don't give like the world. The world gives and takes away, or the world gives and it kind of just fizzles out. What I give is lasting and eternal. I give you peace. And how did he give them peace? How was that peace accomplished what he promised them? It was ultimately accomplished on the cross. Let me explain to you. I think it's important for us to kind of zoom out and look at the entire story of the Bible. We find out right in the beginning of the Bible because of the fall, because of our rebellion against the holy God. What happened? Sin entered into this world. Death came along it. Now there is separation between us and God. We're kicked out of the garden, unable to come back in. Now we are, there's enmity between us and God. Creation is thrown into chaos. We long for peace, trying to obtain peace, and yet it is unattainable. We cannot experience it because at the heart of the chaos, at the heart of everything that is unraveling is the reality that we are not at peace with God. And we even find this in our culture today. What is one of the things that everyone longs for? Regardless of your political view, regardless of your religion, all of us long for some type of peace we long for rest and we have the world promising peace and yet it seems like it's impossible unattainable why because you cannot have peace if there is no peace with God so how can there be peace between us and God if we are enemies of God and there's conflict between us and God and the only way that we can be at peace with God, if somehow a mediator would come in, would pay our debt, satisfy God's justice. And that is exactly what Christ has come to accomplish on the cross. When he said it was finished at his dying breath, what do you mean by that? He meant by our sins have been atoned for, our debt, our trespasses have been paid for, and the justice of God has been satisfied. 
And as Chris said, in our confession and our assurance part, how do we know that God's justice was satisfied? How do we know our sins have been paid for? There's nothing to add to it. Through the resurrection, for that is God's stamp of approval. And Jesus appears to his disciples, and what does he remind them? The peace I have promised to you is the peace that I have accomplished. And the evidence of that peace is the very presence of Christ. I am here. And how do the disciples respond? They are reminded of the promise. They see the evidence of Jesus, the very presence of peace. And they respond in joy. We see their attitude change from anxiety to peace, from sadness to joy. The Bible tells us that they were overjoyed. And because of the resurrection, has truly changed everything. Jesus sends them out now to go and proclaim the message of the gospel to all who would hear. He says, just as, I, as the Father has sent me into the world, now I send you into the world. When Jesus prayed for his disciples, in a sense, he says, they are not of this world, just like me. That's why the world will hate you. But just as the Father has sent me into the world, now I'm sending you into the world to go and proclaim this gospel message. And that's what he tells us. You have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished on your behalf. And he sends you now into the world to go and proclaim this peace. To proclaim the good news of Jesus and point the world to Christ. Now we get to verse 22 and verse 23. Um, it's kind of odd. So we've got to do a little homework, um, maybe put a little effort into, maybe try to understand uh, what's going on here. L- look at verse 22 and 23. Let me read it, and then you'll like say, yeah, that, that, that's kind of weird. Verse 22 says this. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Okay, so let's, let's, there, there's two kind of issues. Let's tackle the first issue. Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. So the very first issue we kind of tackle is, what does Jesus mean by receiving the Holy Spirit? And how does this verse bear um, on the receiving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost? Like, is that a contradiction? Like, did they receive the Holy Spirit when Jesus breathed on them? Or did they receive the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost after his ascension in Jerusalem? Well, we've got to maybe dig in and try to find the answer. One of the things we've already seen, the way John deals with it, John doesn't really care about chronology. In other words, he doesn't really care much about order of events. We've already seen in his gospel, there are some events that are out of order. And I know for us Westerners, especially type A person, like that's the unforgivable sin. You cannot tell a story out of order. And if you do, you're a liar and the entire story is wrong. But in the Eastern world, that's not how it works. 
John doesn't care much about order of events chronology. He cares about the unity of theology. In other words, he wants to make sure that the receiving of the Holy Spirit is tied very closely to the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, slash exaltation of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is tied to that, and that is what he's trying to do. So when, he is, when, when Jesus is saying, receive the Holy Spirit, it's best to understand that this is a foreshadowing of the fullness of the Holy Spirit that will be bestowed on the church on the day of Pentecost. So they're not receiving the Holy Spirit now when, he's, when he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit, but rather what he is saying is when he says it, it is foreshadowing when the Holy Spirit is coming. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Neil, you're kind of reaching because the text says, receive the Holy Spirit. Why would he say it if it's pointing to something in the future? Well, Jesus has done that before. For example, we, we see this at the foot washing. Jesus tells Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. What does he mean by that? He needs to be cleansed. In order to be restored and reconciled, redeemed, he needs to be cleansed. But did the foot washing actually cleanse Peter? No. What was the foot washing point to, pointing to? The cross, the cross where his sin will be atoned for and he will be washed by the blood of the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. So in other words, this sentence, unless you wash you, you can have no part with me. It is pointing to a future fulfillment of what Christ will do on the cross. And that is the same when he says, receive the Holy Spirit is pointing, foreshadowing a future fulfillment when the Holy Spirit will come like a rushing wind and descend on the apostles and all those who are in Christ. But also the point that John is trying to make is not only is the receiving of the Holy Spirit something future, the receiving of the Holy Spirit is needed because it is the power for them to go. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, they cannot effectively be witnesses of Jesus. Thus, they need the power of the Holy Spirit. Now we get to the second part issue what does Jesus mean by, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. I think the best way to look at it, I don't think it means the disciples have the power to, to grant forgiveness or to grant condemnation. They don't have that kind of power. Rather, their power is in the declaration of the gospel. What happens when you preach the gospel? What happens when you proclaim and declare the gospel? It either brings men and women to repent as they hear the ready and costly forgiveness of their sins, or it leads them to be unresponsive, and thus they continue in their sins that leads to condemnation. So what he is saying is this, is that I am sending you by the power of the Holy Spirit to bear witness, to point people there is peace with God. There is a forgiveness of sins 
offer to those who repent and trust in Christ and either leads you to trust to Christ or leads you to be unresponsive. At the end of the day, it is God who effectively forgives sin or retain the sin. But the power for the disciples is in the declaration for the very message is the one that either convicts or condemns. And so in a sense, Jesus' encounter with, with the fearful, guilt-ridden disciples really is a model what, we sh- what should happen every time we, we come and what we, we worship God. Th- think about this. Every time we gather, what happens? Jesus comes in our midst as we speak his word. And then he applies the gospel of peace and joy to our souls and he breathes the Holy Spirit upon us and then he commissions us to do what? To go And proclaim the gospel to others. And the authority Jesus gave the disciples to pronounce the forgiveness of sins is extended to the church in the proclamation of the gospel. Now the the text kind of shifts to Thomas. And what we're going to see is we're going to see a correct response to the gospel that leads to forgiveness of sins. Let's look at verse 24. But Thomas, called twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, for some unknown reason, we really don't know why Thomas was not present when Jesus made himself known to the disciples. The only thing I can chalk up to is the providence of God. However, informed by the other disciples on what they've seen, they're telling Thomas, hey, bud, listen to me. We've seen Jesus. We saw the scars. We, we touched it. We spoke to him. And Thomas like, I, I, I can't believe that. And he demands more than just a sign, but he demands a personal, concrete evidence that the person who he knew who had been killed would have those specific markings. In other words, the risen Christ must have the same physical markings of the crucified Christ. Not only do I have to see the markings, i got to touch the markings. And if I don't see it and if I don't touch it, I will never believe. Whatever we want to think of Thomas, he's known as, as doubting Thomas. Really what he does is he's revealing his struggle of unbelief. And in his reveal of, of his struggle of unbelief, what he is showing us and what we're seeing from his life is that unbelief, just like it went into Thomas's life, can easily take root in our own lives. Thomas wanted to see the evidence with his eyes. And look at what happens in verse 26. And, and what I love is Jesus doesn't shame him or condemn him. Yeah, he certainly does rebuke him and correct him. But Jesus appears to him. Look at Look at verse 26. A week later, not a day later, a week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. And even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. There's our greeting again. 
The doors are locked. He materializes, he appears, and he reminds them of the promise. Peace be with you. And look at how Jesus takes up Thomas's challenge in verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. And Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. But by Jesus taking up Thomas's challenge, he's simultaneously proving that even though he's not physically there with his disciples, he's not present, he hears, he sees, and he knows everything. And he removes all possible ground for unbelief, even the most unreasonable. He takes up Thomas's challenge. He says, touch me. Put your finger right there. Stop in your unbelief and start believing. And how does Thomas respond? My Lord and my God. He gives the most clearest, simplest confession of Jesus. And the repeated pronouns of my shows us this is a personal confession of faith. Now, now I think there are three things we can learn about Thomas's confession and apply to our lives. The very first thing, if you're taking notes, that we can learn about this confession is this, is that the only response to the resurrected Christ that leads to repentance and the forgiveness of sin is, is faith. There's no other response. The resurrection shouldn't create a response of us of interesting, curious. The only response that leads to forgiveness and repentance of sin is that of faith. Thomas sees it. And he responds, not in his unbelief and making up stuff. He responds in faith. But that now leads to the second thing that that if you're taking notes about this faith. This confession of faith is not just a, I hope it's true, but rather it is an embracing of truth. In his response of faith, it is an embracing of truth. The truth that Thomas is embracing is that Jesus is Lord and God. Based on what? Based on the evidence that he has seen. And he embraces the the two highest words, Lord and and Greek. And the Greek translation of the Old Testament is, is translated in the divine name of Yahweh. He calls him Yahweh and God. It's like the same thing. But these two words used together are to address Jesus in the highest recognition of his glory. And what does Jesus do? Does he correct them? No, he accepts that worship without hesitation. And so his confession is clear as he embraces the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. It's so important for us to understand faith. What makes faith strong is the very object of the faith. The truth that he embraces about Jesus. But it's not just a truth that he's embracing. Which leads us to the third thing we, we, we learn about this faith. It's not just an embracing of truth, 
but it's also followed by commitment. It's followed by commitment. He stands before the risen Christ, and he understands that this one, Jesus, who was dead, is now alive. Clearly, he has power over life and death. And if Jesus has power over life and death, then this Jesus is worthy to rule his life. And so what Thomas does when he says, my Lord and my God, he willingly submits himself to the control of Jesus. These truths that he's embracing about the risen Christ must travel along the road of commitment accompanied by a willingness to Christ to follow him and to be persistent in obedience. It's not just a saying, oh, I believe you're Lord and God. There's no commitment on my part. But what does he say? My Lord, my God. My faith is in you. I am embracing the truth of who you are and what you've done, and it leads to commitment. It leads to follow. You have the power and the authority to rule my life. Jesus tells a parable. It's one of my favorite parables about a man who, 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 who stumbles upon a treasure, and he says the kingdom of God is like this. A man walks into a field, and he stumbles upon this treasure. And immediately he goes home and he sells everything. He sells everything so he can buy this piece of land and obtain this piece of treasure. And the point that, that Jesus was making in this parable is that Jesus is like the greatest treasure you've stumbled upon. But it's not good enough to say, hey, Jesus is such a great treasure because if that is true, what must you be willing to do? You must be willing to sell everything so that you could have that treasure. And in our culture, we're like, oh, what a great sacrifice. And the man in the parable are like, are you kidding me? That's an upgrade. I sold something inferior so that I can have something greater. And so the truth that Thomas is embracing is that clearly he's Lord and God, and if he is Lord and God, that means I must follow in a commitment of surrendering and walking in obedience to him. I must be willing to sell the field so that I can have the greatest treasure buried in that field, and his name is Jesus. And we see Thomas's unbelief transform in belief by Jesus. But then Jesus goes and declares a blessing not on Thomas, but on those who will believe without seeing. Now, the word blessed, most parts it means happy, but in this text it doesn't necessarily mean happy, but rather it, it means be accepted by God. You see, Thomas, as a witness of the resurrection, he saw and he believed. But Jesus sees that, that a time is coming. We is not going to provide that tangible evidence that he provided for his disciples because where's Jesus going to go? He's going to ascend to the right hand of the Father and all of those who will believe will do so without the benefit of seeing the resurrected Lord. That's true for us today. We don't believe because we've seen the resurrected Lord. 
And that does not diminish, what we have to understand is that does not diminish our faith, that does not make, reduce our joy because even Peter says in 1 Peter 1 verse 8 to 9, he says, though you've not seen him, you love him and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. But this also does not take away from Thomas's faith. But rather, it's a step of faith that Thomas has taken, displayed in unrestrained confession. And it triggers in Jesus' mind the next step of coming to those who's come into faith. They will not see, but they will believe. And that's why he says, Blessed are those who cannot share Thomas's experience of sight but who in part, because they read of Thomas's experience, come to share Thomas's faith. In other words, our faith, our embracing of truth is not what we see, but rather by what we hear or by what we read in God's word. We read about Thomas's experience. We read about the God who's made himself known to us. And we believe. We're almost done here. John is recording this narrative when Jesus proclaims a blessing on all of those who will believe without seeing, but they will believe because they've heard, because they've read. And then John says, yeah, that's, that's why I wrote this account. That's why I took time to write the account of the good news of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 30. He wraps up his narrative and he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may do what? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The words of this chapter the words of the entire gospel of John are written to produce faith in Jesus. These words are written to declare the miracles and signs that point to Jesus. The words that are written to draw our minds to the fulfillment of the prophecy in the Old Testament that Jesus perfectly fulfilled. These words are written to show us the heart of God's glorious display in the person of Jesus. They are written so that you might believe. They are written for those who have not yet believed and for those who already believe. And here's the greatest application question, not just in our text, but the entire Gospel of John. It's not gathering some interesting facts. Ooh, I don't know about this. Ooh, I don't know. It's about answering this question. Do you believe? That's the very point why he wrote this gospel. Do you believe? Are you still believing? Believing what? That Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior, which means he took my sins and paid for it. Satisfied God's justice. He was sent by God because he was with God because he is the Son of God. And by believing, I can have life in his name. Life is nowhere found other than in Jesus Christ.
John says, do you believe? And I think he kind of ends with a wonderful, simple, clear confession, that of Thomas, my Lord, my God. Let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to move. Um, it's a simple question for all of you. I, I don't know where you're from. Most of you I do, but not for all of you. I don't know your walk with the Lord. But I think it's a question that all of us need to ask whether you're a Christian or not. Do you believe? Are you still believing? That's the greatest application question we can ever ask. And maybe if you struggle in believing, why don't you ask the Lord to help you in your unbelief? Look at Thomas's statement, like, I'll never believe unless I see it. And what did Jesus do? He made himself known to him. Why don't you ask the Lord to make himself known to you? As you heard the word. Ask the Lord to help you believe. And John reminds us, believe in what? Believe in Jesus, who is the Savior, who is the Son of God. And life can only be found in Him. Apart from Him, there is death and destruction. But in Christ, there is life, there is peace, there is joy. He is God who laid down his life for you, who paid for your sins, satisfied God's justice. Forgiveness is offered to you. Do you believe that? Are you clinging to that truth? Holy Spirit, we ask that you would convict, open up eyes, ears, hearts, and minds. May all of us, whether we're Christian or not, feel the weight of our sins. May we behold you, Lord Jesus, the resurrected Savior, and just be overcome for what you've done for us on the cross. Help us to confess you in the clearest, most simplest way as we embrace the truth of who you are and what you've done. As that embracing of truth leads to a commitment of obedience where we say just like Thomas, my Lord, my God. Help us in that. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. As, as we get to the table we are reminded of what Christ has done for us. And even though I said we believe not because of what we see, but what we've heard, the Lord has been gracious enough to give us something physical to see, to taste, as it ministers to our senses. 
but it's not in a sense spiritual that when you eat it, it turns to it or the resurrected Lord transfigures in it, no. But rather it reminds us of who Christ is, his body that was given for us, his blood that was shed for us. And we in a sense are receiving it by faith, clinging and feasting on Christ, saying yes and amen, for he died for my sins. He washed me as white as snow. I am reminded of the covenant I've entered into. And I get to sit at this table, the table of God, even though it is a shadow of the great wedding feast that is happening, I get to sit in his presence, even though it's not fully realized and fully experienced yet. It is a shadow of what is to come. And for right now, it requires faith. But one day at the great wedding feast, no more faith needed, for you will see What a great day that will be. So as we distribute these elements, just by faith, just meditate on what Christ has done for you. The price that he's paid for you, the wrath of God that was satisfied, the righteousness that's been imputed upon you, his righteousness. And that one day, you will get to sit in the presence of the Lord, feasting with him and with all the other saints. What a glorious day it will be. Let's go ahead and distribute these elements. As Jesus reminded his disciples, peace be with you. We are reminded of the peace that we have in Christ. And the peace that he has accomplished was not cheap, came at a price. It was his body given to us so that we can be reconciled. Eat it in remembrance of him. It was his blood that was shed for us, his blood that paid our sins in full, that washed us as white as snow. Drink it in remembrance of him. Can you just take time right now and just thank the Lord for his sacrifice on our behalf? Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that we can now have peace with God because of what you've done for us, Lord Jesus. Lord, thank you for taking our sins and putting it upon yourself and for paying our debt in full. Thank you for satisfying God's justice, something we could never have done, so that we can be accepted by God, we can be brought back into his presence we were once enemies of God, and now because of you, Lord Jesus, what you've done, you've made us children of God. And this gift has been made available to us by faith. And so, Lord, help us to continually receive this gift by faith, clinging to it, believing that what you've done for us is enough. And may we walk in joyful obedience 
and this new identity that you've given us, this new life that you've given us. And may we tell others about you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we stand? Can we worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus?